Today we have the joy and privilege of Lauren Steinhauer doing our preaching for today. And um, he is an elder at our church and a longtime member. And uh, we're so grateful he'll be here to do that. I'll go ahead and read the scripture. Now Thomas called Didymus, one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks of his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Well, here we are. <laughs> Take a deep breath. Heavenly Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. We don't know much about the personalities of the disciples of Jesus. Peter's the best known. Of the three dozen spoken lines ascribed to the disciples in the Gospels, Slightly more than half are by him. However, there are other interesting people on the team. Three of the twelve get mentioned many times, Peter, James, and John. Of the other nine, we hear very little. As a result, it's difficult to know much about them, their personalities, and, and so on. The three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, give lists of the twelve, but that's mostly it. However, we can be thankful for the Gospel of John. He actually gives speaking parts to five of the quieter disciples. Without this, we might never hear the voices of Nathaniel, Andrew, Philip, the other Judas, not Iscariot, and Thomas. Thank you, John. Let's talk about names. Several of the 12 have double names. One is Matthew, who is also called Levi. Some of them have nicknames given by Jesus. He gave Simon the nickname Peter. To James and John, who were brothers, he gave the nickname Sons of Thunder. Mm. These nicknames carry a meaning related to their personalities. Back in college days, my companions gave me several nicknames. Some of them were downright humorous. Most of them worked off my surname. I wore most of my monikers proudly. My favorite resembles the nickname Jesus gave to Simon. He called him Peter, which means rock. The first part of my surname, Stein, means stone in German. Rock. My absolute favorite moniker was the Stein. <laughs> One of the disciples had a rather unique nickname, apparently given him by his fellows. In the list of disciples, he is labeled Thomas, also called Didymus. Here's an unusual part. Thomas is a name 
with a meaning in the Aramaic language. It means twin. His nickname, Didymus, is Greek, and it means twin. <laughs> now, this sounds rather like a joke. If so, I think it's hilarious. But then my sense of humor is both generational and weird. Just, <laughs> just ask Carol. So I think there's more than a simple translation of one language to another in this name. But to explain that requires a word or two about languages. Aramaic was the childhood language of the Jewish people. It had evolved from the Hebrew and other Semitic languages in the Eastern Mediterranean. Hebrew was the language of their sacred scriptures, the Old Testament. Over the centuries, Aramaic had evolved enough that a Jew would need schooling by a rabbi to properly explain their scriptures. Well then, that's the Aramaic language. Greek was the dominant speech of commerce in the Eastern Mediterranean. Locals would need some knowledge of Greek in order to engage in day-to-day -day work. In Galilee, where Jesus grew up, there were districts where Jewish people were in a decided minority. For example, if you were a carpenter living in the little village of Nazareth, there's a good chance that most of your customers would be in nearby Sephoris, a good-sized Gentile city, an enclave where Greek was the going speech. I think the Thomas Didymus thing really was a kind of joke but one with a deeper meaning than simply two translations of the same word. It was a joke because there is a Jewish mindset and there is a Greek mindset, and they're quite different. I'll say about, more about the two mindsets in a few moments. When you look closely, there's good reason why Thomas might sometimes be called by one and sometimes by the other. By the way, Thomas had another nickname that's not found in the Bible. Church tradition has nicknamed him Doubting Thomas. Now it's time to acquaint ourselves with Thomas from Scripture, where he is mentioned and where he gets speaking parts. They're all in the Gospel of John. In a sense, these texts are John's mini-biography of Thomas. What did he say? What was said about him? And what did Jesus say to him? Let's jump right in. Thomas shows up in three chapters in the Gospel of John. The first text is John 11. Jesus and the Twelve have recently been in Judea, in and around Jerusalem. While there, things got rather hot. It was common knowledge that the religious leaders wanted to arrest Jesus and do away with him. The priests had informants on the lookout for him. With this kind of ill wind blowing, Jesus and the guys got out of town. They crossed the Jordan and entered a quiet district called Perea. One day, a messenger from Judea appears with the word for Jesus. Your good friend Lazarus is ill. Please come. Well, the very thought instantly unnerved the twelve. Lazarus lived in the village of Bethany, practically on the doorstep of Jerusalem. Fortunately, Jesus stayed put, and the uneasy disciples breathed a sigh of relief. Then a couple days later, Jesus suddenly announced that he's going to Judea. The reaction of the guys was immediate. Bad idea, Jesus. When you were there last, they wanted to kill you. His reply is quizzical. Lazarus is dead, and I'm going to him. 
The nervous buzz among the twelve continued until Thomas, speaking not to Jesus but to his fellows, said, Let us all go that we may die with him. How do we read this? It certainly sounds cynical. Lazarus is dead, let's go die too. But Thomas is a complete realist. He knows the danger. He's not a happy-go-lucky guy in la-la land. On the other hand, Thomas is deeply committed to Jesus. If the master goes, we should go with him whether he, we like it or not. And they do. They follow Thomas's reluctant lead. Second text is John 14. Things are really hot in Jerusalem. It's well known that the chief priests who run all the religious affairs there have enlisted spies monitoring Jesus' movements, likely offering rewards to those who have any kind of information about his plans. Jesus is careful. He only goes out in public when there are crowds around. He's quite popular with some, and to arrest him would risk an uprising. The priests have to find a way to capture him in a private setting. Jesus plans to celebrate the Passover covertly, and he chooses to do it a day early. He's quite secretive about planning a meeting place in the city. It's arranged in a cloak-and-dagger manner, and it is in an upper room behind closed doors. At the meal, tension among the disciples is palpable. Jesus makes several disclosures which unnerves them even more. The latest is that he's leaving. At least that's what the twelve hear. Besides, Jesus said, you know the way to get there. They're puzzled. They're struck dumb. An uneasy silence fills the room. Finally, one of them breaks the silence. It's Thomas. Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Thomas is not afraid to ask awkward questions. Mystified he may be, but he wants to follow the Lord. He wants directions. Jesus doesn't blow off his question. He answers him with an impressive statement. I myself am the way. Our third and final text is in John 20. On resurrection day, the disciples are gathered again, secretly, with the doors barred. Ten of them are there. Missing is Judas Iscariot, who is dead. Also missing is Thomas. Jesus appears to them without coming through the door. John's report is that they were overjoyed. That's a strong word, yet in this case it's an understatement. There are no words in our language to capture that moment. Thomas is not there. His disappointment is deep. He had believed Jesus is the Messiah, but Jesus had been strung up on the cross and killed. That's not what would happen to the Messiah. That meant he was not the Messiah. Getting killed was what happened to false messiahs, as had already happened to others posing. Thomas, likely in a deep funk, in deep darkness, is alone. The excited disciples track him down where he's hidden away, all speaking excitedly at once, tell him the good news. Thomas doesn't buy it. He's been burned once, he won't be burned again. He needs proof. And he says, unless I see the mark of the hands of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails in his side, I will not believe. What do we have here? Thomas sets the conditions for faith. He needs proof. After all, there are other explanations. 
The disciples may have seen a ghost, a spirit of some kind. A week later, the disciples are back in the secret upper room. The doors again are shut and bolted. This time, Thomas is there, unconvinced, but he is back with the guys again. Out of nowhere, Jesus is in their midst. He greets the disciples and then singles out one of them. Turning to Thomas, he says, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put, them in my, put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. And Thomas gasps, My Lord and my God. Jesus had already done this sudden appearance thing the week before to the ten. It isn't his way to simply repeat prodigious acts. Jesus is unpredictable. He doesn't work like clockwork. Rub the lamp and the genie appears. That's not how he works. Jesus is not an algorithm. But this time he does repeat himself, and he appears in the room. He's done it pointedly for Thomas. In so doing, Jesus gives the loyal one and the reticent one both a gift. He gives Thomas a unique gift. What is it? Thomas gets to speak the words that climax the Gospel of John. Perhaps it climax the entire Bible. He said, my Lord and my God. Think about what just happened. The disciples have already acknowledged that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, the one sent by God to set things right. But that's not what Thomas said. The Messiah was a heroic man with a human heritage, a son of David. They knew his mother. No, that's not what Thomas said. Think of it. Thomas is a card-carrying Jew. He has monotheism in his gut. It's in his DNA. He says the unspeakable. He says what no Jew would say until now. My Lord and my God. Thomas, do you know what you just said? And so it was. Thomas, doubting Thomas, without a plan of his own, becomes the first on record to say it, to say it right out loud. Jesus is God. Thomas gets a speaking line, and it's the climactic line in the entire gospel. That's the end of part one, a brief bio of Thomas. Part two, a parable about Thomas slash Didymus. Let's work on this Thomas Didymus thing. I see it as a parable with two prongs. On the one hand is Thomas with an Aramaic name. He's a Jew, both by birth and by mindset. Thomas has a Jewish mindset. On the other hand is Didymus, a Greek name. He's not ethnically Greek, but he often exhibits a Greek mindset. This is not at all surprising in the first century. Only a minority of Jews lived in Palestine, I believe, and I think it's, it's true today. The Jews were scattered around the Roman Empire. History calls these the Hellenistic Jews. Hellenist is an adjective which means Greek. They weren't ethnically Greek, but without abandoning their Jewish faith, they had adopted many Greek ways of thinking and living. Thomas Didymus is not a pathological split personality. We all have multi-pronged mindsets, all of them lurking inside the same skin. Our hero in the parable straddles two worlds. Sometimes when he speaks, it sounds like Thomas, the Jewish mindset, and at other times it sounds like Didymus, the Greek mindset. 
By the way, there's an old saying, two Jews, three opinions. <laughs> I tried it out on a Jewish friend one time, and he smiled and said, that's right. There's a joke about a guy who, who said, I was having an argument with myself the other day, and I lost. <laughs> well, then Thomas and Didymus, let's look more closely at these mindsets. You might find yourself in one or the other, or possibly both at the same time. I'd like to make three points about the mindsets. This is the abstract part of the sermon. So if you're Didymus today, you'll like this part. If you're Thomas, just bear with me. It won't last too long. Three points. Okay, the first point about mindsets is, is mystery. Thomas knew there was something more than what we can see and hear, touch and taste. Sacrifices, anointings, laying on of hands. He's fascinated by mystery and sacred things. The mystery of prayer, sacred stories. Something profound happens in observing the Lord's Supper. Thomas knows that holy things are real. He's deeply loyal to Jesus, whom he regards as the Holy One of God. He will follow him to the ends of the earth, even to the threat of death. Thomas is the one who said, let us go and die with him. Didymus, however, has a natural distrust of things that can't be detected by the five senses. He's on the lookout for what he calls hocus-pocus. He's uneasy about mystery, things that can't be explained by rational thought. And unlike Thomas, Didymus isn't much into stories. Instead, he values en enduring principles. By the way, reverence is how you act in the presence of the holy. But it need not have a dour and humorless face. Thomas loves festivals and banquets, dancing. He can have genuine good fun, like David who danced before the Lord. Didymus at best tolerates these events. They make him uneasy. As a Presbyterian, I can relate. I can, barely, I can barely raise my arms above my shoulders, especially in church. That's the first point, mystery. Second point, authority. Thomas accepts things on authority. He embraces the word of God without question. Didymus, on the other hand, is a doubter. He has an inquiring mind. He's not afraid to ask awkward questions. It was Didymus who said, we don't know where you're going or how to get there. He's a fact checker. He doesn't want to be taken in. Fake news is on the loose, and he's alert for it, insisting on proof he's the one who said, unless I can put my fingers in the nail prints, I won't believe. When he said that, I can just hear the other disciples looking at each other with knowing winks and smiling, and one of them under his breath says, that's Didymus speaking. A few years ago, I was in an adult Sunday school class. A friend whom I would call a seeker attended with his wife. He asked a question, the kind of question a seeker might ask. My friend was met with an embarrassed wall of silence. It can only mean one thing. You're not supposed to ask questions like that. He was hurt by the experience. He was, as it were, warned off. By the way, having a Greek mindset doesn't mean you're not a Christian. God gives each one of us a mind with remarkable resilience and flexibility, and ignorance is not a virtue. Okay, that's the second point, authority. A third point under mindsets is community. Community. 
To Thomas, one's primary relationship is with his community. As a thoroughgoing, card-carrying Jew, he's into community. It's family. One believes and practices his faith as a part of community together. Didymus, on the other hand, cherishes independence. He has strong beliefs, but his primary relationship is with his belief system rather than people. There's a place for community, but it's less important than correct beliefs. In fact, he's most comfortable in the community of, of folk who believe exactly like him. Thomas likes stories. He's nourished by stories. When Jesus starts telling a parable, Thomas is right there with him. Didymus uh, devalues stories because they're not general enough. They leave out too much detail. They're not systematic enough. Didymus gets excited about ideas. He's nourished by ideas. A few years ago, a friend of ours, a couple, made the practice of deliberately arriving late to their church. They didn't care for contemporary worship music and chose to skip the worship time. They showed up just in time for the sermon. They wanted the Bible teaching, the straight stuff. And speaking of relationships, the same couple regrettably terminated a decade-long friendship with Carol and me over a question, a minor point of doctrine. Well, then, these are pictures of Thomas and Didymus' mindsets, differences over mystery, over authority, and over community. By the way, if you want to follow up with a personal study of the Thomas Didymus mindsets, I refer you to 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to 25, except there the Apostle Paul doesn't call them Thomas and Didymus. He calls them Jew and Greek. Okay, that's the end of part two, two mindsets. Take a deep breath. Part three. How does this parable play out in my life and in yours? Everyone's personal journey has many dimensions, and I'd like to share something of my own, my Thomas and Didymus experiences. To narrow the focus, I'll limit it to my church life. How has the Thomas-Didymus dichotomy played out for me? Expect to hear passages in my story that are much different from your own. Expect to hear others that parallel your journey in places. There are longer stories behind all of these experiences of mine, but we must be brief. As a child, it was natural for me to be Thomas. In Sunday school, I learned songs like, I will never march in the infantry right. Oops, I'm getting the cavalry in there. Anyway, I'm getting them mixed up. Uh, motion songs were great. A great thing for kids with wiggly bodies. Do you remember the one? Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. These songs were rollicking good fun. I can tell by your chuckles that you remember them. <laughs> I remember Sunday school programs during the Christmas season. They were in the big sanctuary of our church. The program was full of solemnity, but with plenty of good cheer and occasional antics by other kids, not me. These were the only times I was ever up on stage at church. The stage was really high. It was about this high. Afterwards, brown bags were handed out to kids at the door. Inside was a shiny apple, candied orange slices, large chocolate drops about this big, and hard candy. The works. As a kid, I was Thomas. Later, same thing. Easter, solemn, but with much festive singing. 
C.S. Lewis wrote about the little boy running out of church after the Easter service, shouting at the top of his lungs, Jesus is risen and chocolate eggs. <laughs> I think there's a close relationship between childhood piety and sweets. In children's church, I love to hear the stories from the Bible, especially when enhanced by flannel graph visuals. And in big church, I got used to ritual and, and decorum. I learned to be quiet during the service and to close my eyes during prayers. In my religious tradition, I witnessed the solemnity of the invitation at the end of the service. People were invited to come forward and make decisions. It was accompanied by the congregation singing quiet and serious songs. Some of you may have come from more liturgical churches than me. Perhaps you remember the special vestments worn by the, worn by the priest or pastor, the smell of incense from the swinging censer. You may remember sacred spaces decorated with Christian banners or stained glass windows. You may have learned to recite the creed together. The service may have been punctuated with kneeling or genuflecting. However, not all of my Thomas life was good. I experienced emotional manipulation at my church. The ideal models presented to us were heroes in professional Christian ministry. Special glory went to foreign missionaries. I also began to feel the push to engage in aggressive forms of evangelism. I was facing one of the dangers of Thomas. Entering college, it was easy for me to become didymous. The college minister at my church introduced me to an intellectually robust form of the faith. I began to see Christianity as the thinking man's religion. As an analytical thinker myself, I found this appealing. During those years, I was attracted to a movement that emphasized building up a massive knowledge of Bible doctrine. It was helpful to learn a systematic approach to faith. On the other hand, as my knowledge grew, a great deal of pride grew along with it. It became almost the worship of knowledge. At some point, I undertook a personal project. I embarked on a quest to master the Book of Romans. After all, it's the longest and most intricate of Paul's writings. This was my scholarly side starting to bud. I wanted to master Paul's masterpiece. How did it go? Taking voluminous notes, I got a dozen or so verses into chapter one. And then I sort of ran out of gas and sadly abandoned the quest. Later, the sequence of events, what I call my Romans quest, restarted a couple times more and ended up with the same disappointing result. Knowing the Bible was some Depth is a very good thing, but in some of my quests for knowledge, I think I actually strayed from the center of the faith. After college came my first job, and Thomas emerged again. My job took us across the country to the Boston area. By then, it was an us, not a me. I had a partner on this journey who still travels with me. In Boston, by God's grace, we joined a truly wonderful church. We became active in the young couple's group and soon were co-leaders with three other couples. It was a wonderful experience of, of Christian community. Our congregation there had a strong investment in missions, but this time I didn't find it oppressive. I learned that I could be involved in missions without being a professional missionary myself. This remains a keen interest of ours to this day. Returning to the Northwest, I became Didymus again. After two years in Boston, my job took me back to Seattle where I drifted into the heavy-duty Bible doctor movement. Without realizing it, 
the teaching I was receiving was taking on some very toxic side effects in me. At the same time, Carol and I enjoyed a major community with our peers, young couples like ourselves, but the teaching itself, there was a lot of anger mixed into it. I began to pick up contemptuous attitudes toward Christians who were not as well taught as me. Without realizing it, I'd become a spiritual prig, a very prideful person. At last, the light began to dawn, but it took some real ugliness by the pastor of our congregation to stir me awake. In short, the Lord took us out of that setting, and over the next decade and a half, we passed through three successive congregations. Each played a beneficial role in our journey as halfway houses. During this transitional period, the Lord purged me of many toxic ideas and beliefs that I had absorbed. He nourished us enough through our churches and through outside resources. Even though our faith was getting cleaned up, as it were, it was still heavily rooted in a conceptual belief system, an abstract collection of truths. The latest phase of our life is back to Thomas. This has lasted for nearly three decades now. I can see, in, in brief summary, two main themes in this era. The first theme is the absolute centrality of Jesus Christ. Learning the Bible, the word, and Christian doctrine is a good thing, but faith is more than a concept, more than an intellectual system that you sign on the dotted line for. Behind that word is the person, him, Jesus Christ. The intellectual system of the faith is still important to me, but behind it is the Lord. The second main theme of the last few years is community and relationship. To quote Dave Rohr, relationality is reality, a relationship with each other and with our Lord. We found it here at Emmanuel. We found family. Having said all that, there's still a good bit of didymus in me, thanks be to God. What about you? You may have been Thomas or Didymus at various parts of your own life. Like Didymus in John 11, you may have been cynical and fancied yourself as the complete realist. Yet, despite this, like Thomas, you may have remained deeply loyal to Jesus Christ, even though a lot of things just didn't seem to fit together very well. Like Didymus in John 14, you may have asked awkward questions. You may have wanted very specific directions on how exactly to follow Jesus. Like Didymus in John 20, you may have laid down conditions before believing. You may have demanded proof. Like Thomas, you may have passed through the dark night of dashed hopes. Like Thomas, rejoining the disciples, you may have come back to the community even though you really didn't have this faith thing straightened out. Here's the amazing thing. Confused, disappointed, Doubting as he was, as Thomas was, Jesus found him and met him right where he was. And then, straight-talking Thomas was given a tremendous gift. He got to speak the words. He got the climactic line in Holy Scriptures, the great confession, my Lord and my God. Like Didymus, I have doubted, and so have you. I've strayed, and so have you. Your loved ones may have strayed too, yet here we are, like Thomas, out of simple faith to Christ. You two are on a journey, doubtless you're looking on with concern with the course of journeys of your children and grandchildren as we speak. 
Their journeys are hardly straight line paths from point A to point B, with many twists and turns, but <laughs> then so is yours. Their journeys aren't over, and neither is yours. Pray for them, even as you pray for yourself. Heavenly Father, thank you for Thomas, and thank you for Didymus, and thank you for the ways that we can identify with these two fellows in one person. Thank you that you find us. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.